The Second Story podcast has seen tremendous growth in the last year and a half, and we couldn't be more excited that you're here listening to us. So far, this podcast has been completely free to our audience and is supported financially through ticket sales to live shows and donations to Second Story. In 2014, we will attempt to make the podcast self-sustaining by seeking out grants and sponsorships and partnerships to continue bringing you the best stories of the best quality. In order for us to find these sources of funding, we need to know some information about you, our listeners. So, we have put together a short demographic survey for our Second Story audience. You can find a link to this survey on our website at secondstory.com on Friday, February 28th. And it'll be live for the entire month of March. Filling out the survey enters you into a drawing for many great prizes, and we'll provide you with a link to a secret bonus episode of the Second Story podcast, one that can only be accessed through completion of this survey. We cannot thank you enough for the support you have thrown our way, and we'll be working really hard to continue bringing you the best stories possible in 2014 and beyond. Now, here's the podcast. This, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast. Where do you find control when the world is spinning out of bounds? Where do you find solace when your family cannot provide? This week on the Second Story Podcast, we explore what it means to be a family and how you can find safety in unexpected spaces. Vince Bagan is the programming coordinator at Second Story and has been involved in the Chicago theater and storytelling scene for, well, just about his entire life. This is his first story that he told with Second Story, and we think he has a bright future ahead of him. With his story titled 2002, Second Story is proud and thrilled to present Vince Pagan. This year, I spent Christmas Day with my family. Well, not my actual family. My chosen family, who is actually my best friend Kim's family, the Orias. We ate Cinnabons in the morning, then made the Crosstown Drive to Nana's house, where we ate enchiladas, drank Mexican hot chocolate, and heard the annual Christmas pageant. We left Nana's feeling that fuzzy feeling you get in your insides that can only come from a warmth-filled night with your family. As for the family I didn't choose, well, <laughs> warmth-filled nights weren't exactly their thing. Attic bedroom, Cindy's house, Logan Square, September 2002. I was tying my shoes and contemplating what to buy for my two friends for their birthday when Cindy, my father's live-in girlfriend, walked into my room with the house phone, holding it out at arm's length. It's your mother. I knew I was in for it. It was mom's birthday, and I had chosen to go to my friend's birthday party instead of hanging out with her. I grabbed the phone from Cindy, ready to get an earful from mom about my choices and priorities. Hey, Mom, look, get your shit together. I'm coming to take you home. I could hear the seatbelt alert in the car, followed by the door slamming. I suddenly felt that morning's lucky charms churning in my gut. I'd heard this tone in Mom's voice before. She was poised to attack. What do you mean you're coming to take me home? I just got off the phone with your father, and he said he can't afford to keep you anymore. So pack up your stuff. I'll be there in 20 minutes. The engine turned over and she hung up with a loud click. I cried angry tears as questions flooded into my head. Why would Bobby say that? Was money that important to him? I thought he said he'd wanted me there, that he loved me living with him, but 
what reason does mom have to lie? I pulled open my largest suitcase. Blood was rushing through my ears so loudly that I couldn't hear the quiet knocks on my bedroom door. My parents split up officially two years before, and it had been messy to say the least. I lived with mom and my older sister in the house that I grew up in, a small bungalow on Cicero and Schubert Avenue. The rooms of the house held the memories of my childhood, my sister and me waking up early on Christmas Day to check out our hall, pool parties in the summer, sleepovers on the weekends, and the time that my sister, cousins, and I recreated the video to Britney Spears' Lucky using Bobby's video camera. I lived for those memories, held on to them during my parents' divorce, hoping that there was some way that I could recreate them, but I'd soon realize that there were some memories that I'd have to let go of, like it or not. In seventh grade, mom went out of town for work and sent me to stay with my father, who, as far as she knew, was living with my uncle. He was not living with my uncle. Lane 45, Pioneer Lanes, North Avenue, and Pulaski, February 2002. When I met Cindy at the bar near the shoe rental desk, she said something nervous, like, nice to finally meet you, before walking away and joining Bobby in their bowling team's lane. I watched as she pulled up her incredibly tight pants before sitting with him. And I don't mean across from him or near him, she was basically in his lap. I watched as her garishly jeweled hand stroked up and down his thigh as he moved the shiny, freshly permed hair away from her face to tell her something in her ear, which must have been hilarious, judging by the cackle that escaped her lips, which sounded uncomfortably similar to Ursula's in The Little Mermaid, with the lipstick and eyeshadow to match. Then she kissed him. And it was sloppy and wet and gross and different than I had ever seen him kiss my mother. I asked Bobby if she was his girlfriend. He thought for a moment and carefully said, yes, she's the person I'm seeing. Attic bedroom, Cindy's house, Logan Square, September 2002. My father, a man whose eyes defied his face in keeping his emotions locked away, sat on my bed and tried to reason with me as I pulled every article of clothing I could get my hands on, mine or not, into my suitcase. His voice was rushed and urgent as he tried to explain that mom hadn't stopped child support payments from being taken out of his check and that he only told her that he couldn't afford to keep me so that she could see his reasoning, promising that he wanted nothing more than to keep me with him and that he would figure out a way to make it so. My head swam as I tried to comprehend what was going on. Mom had convinced me so certainly before, but now seeing the look in Bobby's eyes, how he pled with me, wide and afraid, I wasn't so sure. I followed Bobby down the stairs and out the door to his van, climbing into the passenger seat and buckling my seatbelt as he pulled the car into drive, just as my mother and two uncles pulled up, blocking us in from both ends. Room 305, Bell Elementary, April 2002. Seventh graders at Bell took a class called Facing History and Ourselves, (laughs) which I'm sure now was code for, let's talk about all of the social issues and injustices we've been sheltering you from for the last six years and expect you to be able to handle it. (laughs) 
Today's topic was the U.S. poverty line. After learning what annual salary was considered poor in the eyes of our government and assuming that since losing my father's income, my mother's part-time salary was very well, likely well below that, I made a comment somewhere along the lines of, well, I think a family could probably be able to get by on that amount of money and have just about enough to eat and pay bills. My teacher, Mrs. Zaposnik, nodded and called on someone else immediately afterward with no response, quick to dispel any chance of conflict. She called on Lily Maxwell, who I'm positive was the inspiration for the movie Heathers, and <laughs> who did not agree with what I said. Uh, there's no way a family can get by on just enough. <laughs> there's no way anyone can survive on that amount of money. Mrs. Zaposnik agreed moving forward to break down exactly why my mother couldn't afford to take care of my sister and me, why we were losing our house, and why our pantry, once full, now had barely two shelves worth of food on it. So I told Mrs. Zaposnik, Lily Maxwell, and the rest of my class that it had to be possible for someone to live on that amount of money because some of us didn't have any other choice. I told my assistant principal later that afternoon that I freaked and stormed out because I was poor, that my mother was about to lose the house on Schubert, that there were nights that I went to bed hungry because we didn't have much food, and what we did have, I didn't want, which, looking back, feels petty and selfish. Mom called me from work when I got home from school that day and told me that I'd be moving in with Bobby for a little while because she, quote, didn't know what to do with me. Street in front of Cindy's house, Logan Square, September 2002. Mom stood in front of my house, shrieking my name, demanding that I come out of the van. My father told me to get in the back seat as, and stay there as he jumped out of the car and my mother jumped down his throat. I sat crying and confused as at first my parents, then my uncles, then Cindy fought all over all fought over what they thought was theirs. I wanted to scream, to state my own case, to tell my parents that I didn't belong to any of them, but they fought and screamed and yelled and hated and swore and played tug-of-war with me, my arms growing outstretched and tired, aching to be let go, to be flung into the world so that I could belong to no one but me. I looked out the window across the street from everything that was going on, and I could see that my neighbors in the quickly gentrifying area of Logan Square were gathering behind their curtains and blinds to see what all the fuss was about. The man who lived across the street from us stood on his porch and dialed three numbers before going back into his house. To be honest, if I saw this going on in front of my apartment now, I probably would have done the same thing. My face was burning hot with embarrassment. I kept myself locked in the van, not because they were telling me to, but because I couldn't stand to look at any of them. They were acting like children throwing temper tantrums. My mother stamping her feet and screaming at me to get out of the van. Cindy screaming at me to stay in. Mom threatening Bobby while protected by my two gargantuan uncles. And Bobby saying nothing and looking into the van at me. Scared. Lost at a standstill even though the fighting continued to storm around him Cindy yelled out call the cops Johnny mom shouted don't bother Yavianning. get out of here don't get out no matter what don't talk to my son Cindy es mio and you don't have a say here 
una mujer que duerme en la cama de un hombre casado no tiene derecho de hablar. A woman who sleeps in a married man's bed has no right to talk. It was suddenly really quiet for what felt like a full minute before Cindy shoved my mother backward and they started fighting with each other like two angry hyenas, my huge uncles holding each one of them back with a considerable amount of effort. Bobby stood between the two fighting women and the van. His eyes met mine, desperate and pleading, but the cat was out of the bag. So was the real reason for the divorce and the disintegration of my family. And while Cindy had what I guessed was a leading role in my father's infidelity, it was he who put the final nail in the coffin of his marriage. Mom and Cindy were still going at it when the cops pulled up. My mother's face and neck were covered in scratches while she clutched a small tuft of shiny permed hair in her hand. Spanish slurs flew back and forth, and my mother produced custody papers that proved that for all legal intents and purposes, I did, in fact, belong to her. Bobby ran into the house and emerged with a small white envelope in his hand. I recognized it from the spot in the china cabinet that it had occupied since June. He held the envelope high so that mom and everyone else could see that he had proof that I should be with him pulling out the Father's Day card that I gave him that year with the note I'd written inside of it, thanking him for helping me be better than I was before I moved in with him. A police officer walked over and knocked gently on the window. I opened the door and looked at her, anger rising inside me as I saw the look on her face. Wrinkled forehead, upturned eyebrows, soft, careful smile. Pity. She felt sorry for me. I'm sorry, buddy. But while all this gets sorted out, you're going to have to go and live with your mom. Just for now. Is that okay? I assumed it didn't matter if I thought it was okay. And I knew that I just wanted this nightmare to be over. So I rushed past her and ran up the stairs to get my suitcase. When I came back down, Poppy was sitting on the stairs to the house, his head buried in his shaking hands. I hugged him goodbye as he promised that he would get me back. I got into mom's car and went back to the house that I started to grow up in. Once, the sun-filled rooms of the house on Schubert had been a much-needed safe haven for a poor Puerto Rican boy. Now, after my parents' divorce and the embarrassment that I underwent because of my mother's need to stick it to my father, The rooms of my once great home were flooded with memories of screaming matches between my parents and the pieces of a shattered family that were too indecipherable to try and fit back together. No one ever asked me where I wanted to be. Not really. There were awkward conversations that felt more like interrogations. Asked by mom in front of grandma. Asked by Cindy in front of Poppy, but no one ever really asked Honestly, I don't know what I would have said if they had, but I would have loved to have been offered the choice. This year, I got back from Kim's around 11.30 on Christmas Day to my roommate, Annalena, sitting on our living room couch, watching the Claymation episode of Community for the fourth time that week. We ate leftovers from dinner, shared Christmas stories, laughed and cried at a particularly heartwarming Christmas episode of Bones, and went to sleep long after Christmas had ended. 
it's nights with Kim and the Orias and Annalena that have made me realize that there are some families that we're born into and some that we choose. And I think I made the right choice. rock in a stormy sea. Have you taken your family for granted? This story was curated by Bobby Brisky, with a sound design from Nick Kawahara and performance direction from Rinska Carrasco Prestonary. You can always reach me for comment on this or any other Second Story podcast at ozzy at secondstory.com. Be sure to follow Second Story on Twitter at Second Story or on Instagram at Second Story Chicago to get behind the scenes of our curation process. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes so more listeners can find and hear this work. Second Story podcasts are brought to you in part by the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the City Arts Program, the Chicago Community Foundation, part of the Chicago Community Trust, and the Arts Work Fund. Second Story podcasts are produced by Eric Hazen, with special thanks to Sherry Pentamone and C.P. Chang. We share our stories so you'll share yours. Now go out and knock them dead with story power. I'm Ozzie Totten, and this is Second Story.